Today we're talking about sin, and that's why we have such big crowds. Everybody wants to come talk about sin. Um, uh, we started the first week with how, does, how do you define sin? What does sin come from? It's my conviction. The essence of sin is refusing to accept that God is God. The, the very essence of sin, if you will, is idolatry. It's saying that this is more important than God. I know God's will better than He does. Uh, this is, that is the ultimate essence of God. That's why, I mean, of sin. That's why the first commandment is to love your God, to acknowledge no other gods, because that's the root of all disobedience. And, and the reality is that it's, it's something that, they, according to Scripture, struggle in the original man and woman. It's something that we all struggle with to this day. If you've never argued with God, then, then I'm not sure you've been honest because the reality is we, we struggle with the, the right He feels to tell us how we should live our lives. And especially when He, he in His Word instructs us to things that, that frankly go counter to what we believe or want more often than not. Then last week, we asked, well, how do we deal with sin in our life? And and I, I tried to show you that in Scripture, my understanding is that for a believer, when, when we knowingly disobey God, it causes a fracture in our relationship with Him. We lose intimacy. And the best illustration I know of it is in our closest relationships in life with your, your husband, your wife, your children. When there is an offense, what does it do? It builds a fence, right? It, it creates distance. And, and and the longer we go with that distance, the more we get separated in our joy with Him. And how do we overcome that distance? Well, by admission and, and, and reconciliation, which is, which is confession, so that, that we acknowledge that there's a problem and we work through it together, and in doing so, we restore in our relationship with each other. And the fact is that many marriages live on separate islands because they let things fester between themselves they never dealt with, and they grew further and further apart. And the fact is that many of us in church have done the same thing. We've let something fester between us and God, and over time the distance with Him has grown greater and greater, and, and we wonder where He is. And it's that lack of confession of sin and admission, to, bless you, of, the, of disobedience that, is, that has harmed the joy of our walk with Him. So, today I want to talk about what, what do you do about sin among other Christians, sin in the church? What do you do with the brokenness in the body of Christ? I kind of feel like I ought to sit down in a chair and we ought to just have a little discussion because the reality is all of us have, have encountered it and it has affected all of us in different ways. There are many who were active in the body of Christ who even claim they're Christians but don't attend church, don't involve because somewhere along the way uh, they saw believers do things or they experienced believers doing things that hurt them so deeply that disillusionment set in and they walked away. Um, and probably all of us get really uncomfortable at times with things that goes on in the church. Because even though we know everyone's a sinner, I mean, it's, it's part of the faith, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that intellectually. It's still just candidly, really disappointed when, disappointing when you see someone that you know and love or respect and see them do something that, that causes you to be disillusioned. Um, 
So I'd like for us to just take some time, and we're going to look at a lot of Scriptures and see what Scripture says about how do you respond when there's sin among other believers. And, and you know, long papers can be written on this subject, okay? But I'm going to click through some very simple passages that I, I think will bring some hope and help as we try to work through this. Um, what do we do about first personal sins? Sins against us. Uh, Matthew 18, 15 is the famous passage on this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother or sister over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a reference to the Old Testament command. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, uh, the first issue is what if, what if a, a, another Christian does something that's really, really wrong to you? What do you do? My dad's best friend for many years was our car mechanic, Ralph. Ralph was a hoot. He could have been a sitcom. He was just one of those guys. And his line was, that, that guy made me so mad, I'm going to take him over in a corner and think bad thoughts about him. Um, in other words, he acknowledged that oftentimes when someone offended him, his way of getting even was just to, you know, chew him out in his mind or maybe tell other people. But scripturally, that's not our calling. When there's an offense, we have a responsibility to go to someone and speak and honestly in love. Now, let me tell you one of my themes of this. I feel strongly that everything as it relates to relationship is rooted in the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says we're all broken. We, we, we all have things that are inconsistent with the truth of God in our lives, right? That's truth. And, and, and unless we're willing to face that truth, it's, it's like having an illness, not being willing to admit it. It can't get any better. But the gospel also not only says truth, but it also speaks to grace. And that grace is God looked down from heaven and saw our disobedience, but he, he, he demonstrated his grace, his love for us, and that he gave his son for us, right? That while there is truth, you've got a problem. There is grace. There is forgiveness in Jesus. The same thing is true in all of our relationships in the church and at home. When, when there is an offense, that is truth. You go and you speak that truth to someone if you want to, in order to retain the relationship. And you speak it to them, not to everyone else, in the name of sharing, so they can pray more effectively. Um, you, you go and you, in, in, in humility, because you know you're a broken person as well, you speak of the offense. And you give them opportunity when they hear it to respond in humility to themselves and admit it. If the offense is great enough, Jesus said, if, if they continue in it, then you go bring witnesses. Because in the Old Testament, it took two or three witnesses to establish anything in a court. And if they choose to continue in the sin and disobedience, then you go to the church and the church leadership. And, and if, if they are adamant in a refusal, then ultimately they're excused from the body. In the church, the ultimate thing we can do of discipline is, is ask someone to leave. Everyone's, years ago, someone said to me, why should I become a member of our church, your church? And I said, because if you don't, we can't throw you out. 
Because uh, that's kind of the ultimate thing. I mean, ultimately, I mean, tr- it's the truth. The ultimate exercise of discipline we can have is to remove you from the fellowship because you're continued disobedience. It's not that we should gossip about you, not should we try to hurt you or anything else. It's just to have a separation, and that's what Jesus calls from here. So, when there is disobedience, there is uh, the first step is to go to them and speak. But keep in mind, it's done in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in Christ, God forgave you. In other words, I've found in life there are truth people and there are grace people. Uh, Chris Howell, who used to lead worship here, uh, used to say in every marriage, one is the truth person, one is the grace person. The truth person speaks the truth, the grace person everybody likes. And I said to Chris, which one am I? And he said, really? Um, uh, you know, every marriage has that. And in and, and a church, there are those the people that are the grace, truth people, and they want to establish the truth. That's their, they want to call it out and, and thank God they're there because it's like raising a child. If you ignore the bad behavior, have you done a good thing? If you choose to ignore behavior that's self-destructive, have you done a good thing? Obviously not. You need to speak truth to your child. But, but there, God always keeps truth modulated by His grace. In other words, we speak truth when someone does something offensive, where there is a sin that needs to be called out, but it should always be in the context of grace because that's how God responded to our brokenness. You see how that plays out in all relationships? Some of you have been damaged by parents who were truth parents but never extended grace. You never felt like there was truly acceptance there. Now, some of you have been damaged by gracious parents who, who never spoke the truth. And we, we're all sorry for that because we have to live with you. That's a joke. I had no one in mind at all, okay? But you, you see how that plays out in our lives. Both of those go together in the context of disobedience by someone. So when someone sins against me, I have a responsibility. If, rather than become something that... Ho- divides us, if it's great enough that will damage our relationship, then Jesus called us to go and speak to them in mercy and love. Um, But the interesting thing is, Jesus also in the Sermon on the Mount, don't forget your own sin. Matthew 5 verse 23, therefore if you're offering your gift at the altar, this would be in the Old Testament sacrificial system, and, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, part of your worship not only should be about somebody who's offended me, but they also should ask the question, before I engage in worship, is there someone that I've harmed? that I need to make restitution. You remember in the case of Zacchaeus, the famous short guy in the Scripture. Why isn't the short guy the exemplary sinner in Scripture? Um, uh, Zacchaeus, when when Jesus confronted him and he responded to the gospel, what he said, I'm going to give back four times what I stole. There, There is restitution as a part of that healing process. And so, Jesus says that if you're going into worship, you realize I've harmed someone. He says, go and make it right with them. 1 Corinthians 11 takes the same idea in the context of the Lord's Supper, and it says, examine yourself. Part of what's going on there is asking myself, is there someone that I need to make things right with? 
Now, some of you are thinking, okay, this is getting a little weird. I just came to a church. I was going to sing, hear a nice religious talk, and go home and feel better about myself. But, but the fact of the matter is, God's intention in the church is to create a community that's supernatural, a community that, that is shaped by grace and truth, so that the truth is willing to face our issues with courage and boldness, but the mercy and grace offers forgiveness and acceptance when we respond in faith to Christ. You know, we did the advertisement for Reengage, and and we do Regen here too. And and if you know those programs, they're they're rooted in a lot of the things that historically were a part of, for instance, AA's twelve step program. In college and business school, I, I was taking a course in management, and I wrote a paper actually on twelve steps. And one of the things, and I've I read the uh, the big book a number of times for that paper, and. Uh, had had some experience with people I knew from it. And, and one of the things that blew me away is this stuff's just all in the Bible. You know, this, this stuff about acknowledging that, that we can't do it on our own, but that we, there's a God who's bigger than us, acknowledging that I have a problem, that I need help, all of that stuff is just in the Bible. It's like we had to send it out to AA and now bring it back, and now we'll embrace it when it was ours all the time. The reality is that, that those steps of, of asking forgiveness, making amends, whatever you call it, those steps of rebuilding relationship are rooted in the gospel, taught in Scripture, and recommended in our personal relationships. That's why those programs are so effective, because it's from the Bible. And by the way, let me encourage you, if you're a couple Reengage is a break program. We've got incredible people volunteering to lead it. I hope you'll consider signing up for it. I promise you'll be grateful. And in the first of the year, we'll sign up again for Regen. And it's, it's a discipleship program that makes us deal with that stuff. And it's a healthy program. I'd encourage you to do it. So when someone sins against you, you have a responsibility to call it to mind, but you also have a responsibility to check yourself. Jesus really got offensive on this whole subject, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, because he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You know, he's really meddling at this point. Um, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, it, when there is sin of the... Uh, uh, in the body of Christ, when someone does something that hurts us, we have a responsibility to go to them in honesty. But one of the good disciplines is first to ask, what have I done? What have I done? Now, hear me. There is a lie going around that when there's a break in relationships, it's always 50-50. Both parties always have the same responsibility. That's absolute nonsense. That's absolute nonsense but we can all learn, right, from our part. And, and Jesus is pointing out that, that we are all much better at seeing other people's disobedience than we are at seeing our own. We just have much better vision when it goes that way. 
And so there's an appropriate place for asking God, help me see my fault. It's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament that I've prayed more times than I can count is, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. You know why that's significant? Because I can't see my stuff. It all makes sense to me. And, and, and that's, that's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us to be honest with ourselves so that we can experience His grace. Because there's no lie we'd rather believe than our own. James takes the whole subject of, of confession and, and dealing with sins to a higher level. Chapter 5, verse 16, he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We're going to take five minutes, and I'd like for a number of you to stand up. You're laughing. You, you saw through it. I just, I was hoping I could get, I, there were a couple of visitors that were getting ready to leave. I saw them pick up their purses, and um, uh, um, obviously there's an appropriate place and appropriate time. But part of true intimacy and, and part of true honesty is being in the kinds of relationships where you confess sins so that you can pray for each other and go forward from that. Uh, throughout my Christian life, I've always tried to have relationships with other men where we met without supervision of women and where we could be honest about our failings with each other. It's just, it's just something we need. It's just something we need. Uh, we, we need those kind of relationships where we can build the trust first. It has to be in the context of trust. In other words, it's inappropriate to walk up to someone you've met one time and say, can I tell you all my sins? If they're sane, they'll say, no, I've got to catch a cab to New York right now. Um, that's, that's not a healthy thing. But, but it is a healthy thing to be in the kind of relationships where there's the mutual trust and honesty to admit our need for growth because we all do. Someone wants to find status quo as Latin for the mess we're in. And, and the reality, way too many of us Christians, way too many of us who call Jesus our Lord have gotten way too comfortable with the status quo. And rather than continuing to grow in Christ and have the honest relationship not only with Christ but with other believers where there's confession of sin, there's an opportunity to grow, we've hit a stagnation and our prayer life and our walk with Jesus shows it. And one of the ways that we can have true joy in our relationship is when we have relationships with other believers where these opportunities to call each other to account and encourage each other to love and good deeds, as Paul says. Because it, it's, it's just so much more fun when you're a part of a team than rather than when you're doing it alone. So James says, confess your sins one to the other. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. But don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. As I mentioned, the, the ultimate exercise of discipline of the body of Christ is separation from. In, in other words, and that separation is so that I don't fall into the same disobedience. But Nathaniel Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter hit on something, and that is all too often we Christians don't just, don't just exercise discipline, we, we harm people. 
And, and Paul says, don't, don't, they're not your enemy. They're your brother, but they're your brother in, in a behavior that's self-destructive. Don't treat them that way. So in the context of personal sin, in the context of sin between you and me or me and someone else, what do I do? I go and after prayer and in humility, after looking at myself and what I may have done wrong, I go in humility and, and ask if we can talk about it so that there is an opportunity for restoration. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly what God calls to us to do when we sin against Him, to confess our sins so that we can be restored. Because life is an illustration of the gospel. That's what it's intended to be. Um, What about sins in the church? How do we respond to sins in the body of Christ? Um, Because of the media and the access to information, we hear way too regularly about pastors who who, uh, take advantage of the position they're in and harm other people. Most of us in, in the business community in Dallas have, have seen uh, Christian business people who have done things that have done great harm to other people. What do we do in the body of Christ when there's something like that? The passage that's most often used is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, it's been reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the unbelievers, the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Um, uh, in the Corinthian church, they, uh, Corinth was a town uh, famous for a sexual immorality. And, and so that they had become so conditioned to it when there was incest in the congregation, they had grown accustomed to looking the other way. And Paul says, come on, guys. Uh, you shouldn't let that go on and on and on and on. I love it when people talk about the first century church as if it was special and different from anything we have. The Corinthian church was special. They were a mess. They were a mess. And Paul calls them out and says, guys, you can't, you can't look the other way. Call him out. Go to him and, and say, if, if you're not going to clean up your life, don't come worship with us. Now, interestingly, in 2 Corinthians, the guy had admitted his failing and repented on it, and so Paul had to go back to the church and say, let him back in. Don't hold that against him. He's admitted his failing. This is truth and grace. The truth is to call out the sin, but the grace is to always welcome people back, right? Are the things in the church that we struggle with? Yeah. Let me say, uh, first of all, that uh, as long as I've been associated with this church, the leaders of this church, the pastoral staff, and the elders have taken seriously the responsibility to do this. More times than you will ever know, a pastor or an elder has gone to someone and said, please, please change this behavior. And it, it never came to the big public discipline so that some people say, well, you know, churches never do that. Now, we do it. We just do it with a hope of restoring people. Um, two times in my time here, once when Mike Fisher was pastor and once when I was pastor, we had to do public d- discipline of someone who was actively disobedient, flagrantly disobedient, and refused to turn after repeated warnings, and we had to excuse them from the membership of the church. Scripture calls you to that. Uh, in, in the case of the one in my time as serving, I met with the individual weekly for six months, begging him 
arguing with him, trying to encourage him to make the decision to, to make the right decision. And he ultimately said, no, I'm choosing to disobey. I'm going to go this way. And for the sake of his family, we had to stand up and with members only present, acknowledge that we had asked him to leave the congregation. But that's not normal. There's a time when you do it when there's unrepentant sin for their sake, hoping that they will return, but also for the integrity of the body, right? But the, the normal approach is, is for believers to care enough about each other that we go up and sit down with each other and say, hey, man, have you considered your actions? Not in a judgmental way. I mean, it, all of us are sinners. But there are times when people get pursuing a flagrant sin, a willful and knowing sin that is going to end in the breaking up of their family or their personal life or something else. And, and a church has a responsibility to face that. And we've done it. But very slowly, very hesitantly, because it has to be done in the sense of humility and of love. Romans 16 is interesting because there's one sin in particular that Paul calls out that we should deal with. Verse 17, it says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. There can be disagreement, and there should be. I don't want to go to a church where everybody agrees on everything. Uh, Institute for Church Growth a number of years ago published material that said churches that grow fast are the churches that are most homogenous. In other words, where everyone's the same socioeconomic, everyone's the same race, everyone's the same education level. And, and, and you know why those grow? Because we all agree. We look at each other and say, you know, you're right. We all agree. What's the problem with that? How do you grow? How do you see error if everyone agrees, everyone sees the same thing? We should have agreement on the essentials. The gospel of Jesus Christ is non-negotiable, and the theological building blocks of that are non-essentials. But we should be feel, feel okay with disagreeing with each other, people that vote differently, the people that view life differently, because that causes us to grow, right? One of the scariest things about our society right now is we demonize anyone who disagrees with us. If you disagree with me, you're evil. Well, that's very good for my personal feelings, but it's incredibly harmful and arrogant. The, the reality is that there's a healthy sense in which we can come together and be in disagreement. I, I know this is going to shock you. I, I, I don't know how. Some of you may leave the church to find out that sometimes Julie and I don't agree. She's here. I had to say it. You know, sometimes we don't agree. Thank God because it's in our differences that we're, we're forced to see ourselves more accurately and give ourselves an opportunity to grow. And, and it's insecurity or dishonesty that doesn't allow other people to agree, I mean disagree with us. Um, so there is an exercise of discipline, but the one thing that isn't accepted, though, is when when we use that to create divisions. Scripture is very, very serious about unity in the body of Christ. In other words, we can disagree, but we do it with grace. One of the things that was great about being at a theological school, going to seminary, is, is learning how 
different opinions made up the body of Christ. People that were really good, God-fearing, amazing people could be wrong. You know, it was amazing. They disagreed with me. Um, now, I, are you all there? The, the, in, in other words, it, there was that, that sense of, of realizing how big God's tent is. But what God doesn't allow for is division. Why? Because it, it, it makes a mockery of the love of God and, and the health of His community. All right, I'm running out of time. I've got to keep going. Um, so what's the ultimate goal of this? The ultimate goal is always restoration of the sinner. In other words, a lot of times when you think of a, a sermon, a sin series, <laughs> sin sermon series, you think of that, that we're going to point our fingers and blast people and we're going to make it righteous and boy, we're going to feel good about how good we are. But that's not the point of Scripture when it comes to dealing with sin. The point of Scripture is always to restore people. Because isn't that what the gospel did? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In other words, the gospel is not about condemning us. It's about allowing us to experience complete forgiveness by Jesus' death on the cross if we place our faith and hope in Him. And so, just as the gospel is to restore us in relationship to Him, divisions and disagreements and sin and the church, the ultimate goal should always be to restore people. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brother, if someone is caught in a sin, you are spiritual, should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Go in, in humility and speak truth, but to extend grace and it's restore people that are broken. We're a place for broken people. And part of the responsibility we have when we see that brokenness and among the body is to speak truth to people so that they can experience God's grace and be restored to wholeness and health and relationship not only to Christ but to the community. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order to be ashamed. The common method of, of dis discipline in the body of Christ is separation. Uh, but uh, to try to call people, that's the worst thing you can do. Not go around bad-mouthing them, but to separate from them, uh, put distance so that hopefully they'll be restored to turn back to him. My favorite is James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. When there's disobedience among the body of Christ, we have an opportunity to be a part of God's ministry of reconciliation and restore people. Um, has the sin of someone else impacted your walk with Christ? Are, are any of us carrying around the baggage of hurt or anger or bitterness because of what some other Christian did to us? Um, part, of, part of what this would call us to do is, is to seek healing in that. Possibly you need to go to them and, and, and call them out in a spirit of humility.
don't let that define who you are. Do you have relationships that you need to restore and seek forgiveness? You know, the gospel is about reconciling. Sin always divides. And, and God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were offensive to God, He sent His own Son to die for us. He didn't deny our sin. That wouldn't have been true. But He extended His grace by virtue of Jesus to paying the price for all of our sin. But that, that, that reality should shape our other relationships as well. The, not, not dishonesty, but truth. But truth that's covered in grace and mercy so that there can be peace. Um, people will disappoint you. They just will. It's in the book, right? We're all sinners. We're all broken. Uh, there's a famous preacher who used to say, the hope of the world, the local church is the hope of the world. It bothered me for years, and I finally figured out what bothered me about it. Don't put your hope in the church. It's not the hope of the world. But Jesus is. The, the, the church will disappoint you. Preachers will disappoint you. Elders, uh, the leaders of all the ministries will disappoint you. The, the hope isn't in the church. The church is full of broken people. But in, in order to live out what God has called us to do, there are things that we can do that speak truth with grace to allow us to restore those relationships because then we can have the Old Testament idea of peace, which is wholeness and unity again. Christian, don't embrace the gospel and then deny it in the way you relate to others. But instead, apply the reality of the gospel, which is truth and grace, honesty and forgiveness, and live that out with your family, in your church, in your work, in all your relationships. Let's pray. Father, we confess that this is hard for us to do. Many of us have hurt others and have experienced hurt that defines us way too much. Lord, I pray that we would be brave enough to confront the issues, but gracious enough to be treat, treat others the way you treated us first. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.